Hi there, it's Matt here, and welcome back to the podcast. And welcome back to two things. First, welcome back to another AMA episode. The response from you folks has been great, and we've decided to try and see if we can get at least one AMA every month that we will release and dedicate. It won't be a replacement for my usual stock standard two a month episodes. So this will be essentially a bonus third episode that will be arriving every month. But the reason that I believe they've been so successful based on the feedback that we've had from you folks is not because of me, it's in spite of me. And it's the second welcome that I have, which is welcome back to Dr. Etty Ben-Simone, who folks have had so much rightful adoration of. Etty, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Matt. It's great to be back. So let's just dive right into it. I know, I think you've got lots of questions that I need to try, <laughs> try to offer answers to. I will butcher those answers and then I'll hand it over to you to provide the meaningful answers. But let's get into it and go for the first question. So the first question is about a link between poor sleep quality and Apple E4 carriers. What is that link? Oh, great, great question. And it's relevant for us because we've been doing a lot of work in this area of sleep aging and Alzheimer's disease. Um, gosh, it was one of the first things that I started researching, uh, cough, cough, <clears throat> 20 years ago. -ish, as a, <laughs> Went as by a young, very fast. <laughs> yeah, as a young PhD student. But it's a great question and it is very relevant because I know that now the rise of all of these different consumer genetic tests have really exploded. A lot of people, if they choose to, will know what's called the APOE status. So let me see if I can unfold this in a somewhat structured way. We'll start with what is APOE4 genotype. You can think of the APOE4 genotype as a unique, almost a tag or a label in your body's instructional manual. And when I say instructional manual, what I mean is that your DNA is your instruction manual. And nested in there is this unique tag. And this label is specifically coding for a protein named apolipoprotein E, which is, it's almost a little bit like a delivery truck in your body that transports fats, which is what we call lipids, to different places, different regions. Everyone has a two-copy version of the ApoE gene. And they have different numbers. Those numbers run from two to four. And there are varied, therefore, two copy combinations of that. And I will start to break that down in a little bit, but stick with me here, folks. The ApoE4 variant is a special version. And it's special because it can influence your brain aging health. And it also influences your sleep. And those two seem to be connected. And here's where perhaps it gets a bit more serious. Having the ApoE4 variant and the double copy, the two copy variant of the ApoE4 genotype, it can mean a few things for your health, particularly your brain health. And what we've discovered is that people with that ApoE4 variant, the two copy variant, what we call the homozygous, so you've got two copies of the E4 they have a significantly higher chance of going on to develop Alzheimer's disease when they get older. And so to be clear for folks who, if they know their status and they know that they are ApoE4 homozygote, meaning they have two copies, I do want to lessen any fear mongering. It simply means that you have a higher risk or a greater chance of that developing into Alzheimer's disease, but it's not a certainty. Just because someone has that twin ApoE4 tag doesn't mean that they will definitively get Alzheimer's disease. It's simply that they may be more likely to get Alzheimer's disease than someone who doesn't have that flavor of the tag. So think of ApoE4, or the way at least I think about it in science and medicine, 
like a, an orange flag that alerts scientists and, and doctors to pay special attention to certain aspects of a person's health, especially as they get older, if they are ApoE4 homozygotes. And I will come back to why that's relevant because it does relate to their cognitive brain health and particularly their memory. So now let's speak about what it means for sleep disturbances, having set up what the ApoE4 genotype is and the risk for Alzheimer's disease. Certainly what we see is that if you look at just general abnormalities of sleep, think of that as anything that is unusual or different about sleep. So it's a very gross metric. We know that sleep disturbances in that gross metric are much more common in older adults. But we've also found that it is considerably more severe in individuals with Alzheimer's disease. Secondly, what we've discovered is that as we get older and as those sleep problems become worse, especially in Alzheimer's disease, it seems to almost go hand in hand in lockstep with worse memory and worse cognitive performance. And the short hand term for that is what we call cognitive decline. Again, I will come back to that cognitive decline aspect of ApoE4 and Alzheimer's disease, if I can remember. <laughs> Etty, will you make me remember, please? <laughs> or forget all it. cognitive decline. I'll remind you. <laughs> That's such a nice diplomatic way of saying how I'm uh, faring at the sleep center on a daily basis. There is this sort of colliding jigsaw puzzle that we're putting together here, which still remains a little confusing, but don't worry, which is the ApoE4 genotype, it's increased risk for Alzheimer's disease, us aging, and then our memory getting worse. It turns out, however, it's not quite as interrelated. It's not quite as simple as that. And there was a great study by Jonathan Blackman and his colleagues, and it was published last year. I think we actually sent it around on the Slack thread at the Sleep Center, and it looked at individuals with dementia and without dementia. And what they found is that if you had the ApoE4 homozygote combination, so two copies of that ApoE4 gene, it didn't seem to matter whether you did or you did not have Alzheimer's disease at the time. Independent of those two things, just having the ApoE4 homozygote status meant that you had significantly greater sleep disturbance. Keep in mind that the way that they measured that, it was quite general. It was using an assessment that I won't bore you with, but it's called the Neuropsychiatric Inventory. And it's not quite as detailed as we would like, but it was some evidence at least. And I do find that interesting that no matter whether you had dementia or you didn't, irrespective, having the ApoE4 twin combination, as it were, you are more likely to have sleep problems. And I find it interesting because, at least to me, and feel free to chime in here, Etty, that suggests that the ApoE4 genotype impacts sleep through mechanisms that are not necessarily related to the pathology of Alzheimer's disease, which is things like amyloid and also tau protein. Because if it was related to that, then you would have expected greater sleep disturbance in ApoE4 individuals who did have dementia versus ApoE4 individuals who did not have dementia. But that didn't seem to be the case. It seemed to be independent, common across those two things, which means that there's something else going on, at least in my mind, that the ApoE4 genotype moves through in terms of a mechanistic pathway to create sleep disturbance. Does that make any sense, Etty, or have I just confused people with that explanation? Yeah, it's fascinating. It really tells us that, that perhaps there is something about lipid transport that we don't know is contributing to better sleep. And this is a whole new field that we can explore, independent of dementia and Alzheimer's. So it's a great point. Thank you for doing that. Returning back to what the apolipoprotein gene is all about, which is lipid transfer, lipid manipulation, as Etty said. So perhaps there's something about that lipid pathway that is explaining sleep disturbance. One possibility is that irregular or abnormal lipid profiles have been associated with higher levels of inflammation. And we know that high levels of inflammation, particularly within the brain, 
can cause disruptions in a number of its functions that could lead to sleep disturbance. And that's just one of many different possibilities. I think it's absolutely fascinating. So that was how ApoE4 is related to just this general picture, this big blobby term called sleep disturbance. We know a lot more about it. So let me take a step down in terms of granularity and speak firstly about what we call sleep efficiency and also the amount of time that you're awake. As folks will remember, what is sleep efficiency? Well, of the time that you're in bed, what percentage of that time in bed is spent asleep? So let's say that you spend eight hours in bed and you're asleep for six of those eight hours, then you have a sleep efficiency of 75%. And normally we'd like to see that up above around the 85% range for a healthy individual. And what people have found, and there was a great study back in probably around 2016, 17-ish, and it was a study by Laura Drogos and colleagues, and what they found was that people who were ApoE4 carriers, that is individuals who have the higher risk of Alzheimer's disease, they did express reduced sleep efficiency relative to other forms of the ApoE combination. What was interesting is why they were awake more of the night. Now, of course, those two things are interrelated. If you have a lower sleep efficiency, it means that you're sleeping less and you're awake more as your time in bed calculated. But that can be one of two reasons. It can be either that you're waking up many more times, but for a short period of time, or Maybe you're just waking up once or twice, but you're awake for a very long time. And they found an interesting distinction, which I still don't truly understand how to put it in place mechanistically. They found that, yes, individuals with the ApoE4 homozygote, they had less or reduced sleep efficiency, more time awake. But the way that that time awake was structured was not necessarily that they were waking up more times it was that they were waking up about the same number of times, but they just couldn't get back to sleep. And so here again, there seems to be perhaps something related to the ApoE4 homozygote combination. That means that you struggle to get back to sleep, perhaps because it could be, for example, related to higher rates of anxiety or just levels of brain activation that are too high. I found that little twist in their paper. Very interesting. And I, I don't know, do you have any thoughts about that, Etty, and, and maybe how it could be related to what the ApoE4 gene is doing or what it could be doing? It's very interesting. First, I'd like to emphasize that these are people who do not have Alzheimer's disease. They don't have any cognitive impairment when uh, these studies are done, right? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So it really tells us that perhaps the contribution of disrupted sleep to the development of dementia really begins early on, and perhaps the APOE status is one of those mechanisms, which is really fascinating. That it's almost foreshadowing that it's mm -hmm. what we call almost a, a precipitating event rather than necessarily a contributing event once the first couple of fingers have flicked those dominoes and once exactly. the cascade gets underway, then it comes into play. No, it actually may be arriving in terms of its mechanistic contribution. And when I say it, I mean the ApoE4 combination is occurring with its influence much earlier. Now let me take another step further down. We've spoken about the general architecture of sleep. Now let me speak about specific stages. And this is where things got very surprising, at least they were surprising to me until I thought about it a little bit longer and also thought about what the authors were offering. Just to add some context, again, I never mean to assume that anyone has listened to any of the other episodes or knows anything about sleep. So we're going to be speaking here about something that we call deep non-REM sleep. It also has other names such as slow wave sleep because of these big, lovely, powerful, slow brain waves. And then we can also break it down in terms of its electrical pattern of activity. And deep slow wave sleep sits in a category of electrical brain activity that we call delta activity. 
<laughs> I know I've just thrown a lot of spaghetti against the wall, but essentially just stick with me here. We're talking about deep non-REM slow wave sleep. And as some further context, deep non-REM slow wave sleep, it can be a marker of how much what we call sleep pressure that you've been building up during the day. So if I were to deprive you, the listener of sleep for an entire night, the next day you would be so sleepy and that next evening you would be so, so sleepy. You would have built up all of the sleep pressure and you would experience more of this deep sleep than you would do on a standard night. And that's because deep non-REM sleep seems to be a marker of how long you've been awake and homeostatically responds in a way that we think tries to placate or in some ways evacuate that sleep pressure that you've been building up. I wanted to take a break to mention a new partner of the show, and that is the company called Levels. And Levels is a patch that you can just place on your skin and it will track your blood sugar levels both across the day and for me, even more importantly, across the night. I started using Levels, gosh, almost two years ago now, not because I had any issues with blood sugar control, but I wanted to understand two things. First, how was my body responding to the things that I was eating? And how was it responding in a dynamic way, meaning moment to moment to moment? The second thing I wanted to understand was whether or not the food that I was eating, and more specifically the blood sugar response to that food I was eating, was impacting my sleep. And conversely, was the quality of my sleep at night impacting my blood sugar control the next day? And Levels provides you with a very simple to use continuous glucose monitor. I can say from personal experience, it has been unbelievably informative and very powerful and has actually forced me to make some behavioral modifications in terms of certain things that I'm eating and try to stay away from them. If any of this sounds like it would be interesting to you, you can get a discount and you can get two free months of levels if you just go over to levels, that's L-E-V-E-L-S dot link forward slash Matt Walker. So that is levels dot link forward slash Matt Walker. And you will find a discount offer waiting for you there. <laughs> and yes, just like with all of the others, I buy my own product, but I also use my own discount code. So again, levels dot link forward slash Matt Walker. So that's a quick overview about deep sleep, but let me get to the twist in this story. And it came from a wonderful sleep researcher and her team, Katie Stone, and it arrived. I remember I was actually, I just taught one of my lectures in a sleep class and I was walking it. It was on the other side of the campus because it's a big class, it's about 500 students. And on the walk back, I would always use that time. It's a surprise that I survived the cars, but um, to read the journal as I'm walking, different journals to catch up. And I was reading this paper and I remember the day and I remember exactly what was going because it was so strange. And the paper came out in 2018. What they were doing was looking at individuals who had this APOE4 status carrier and they compared it to lots of other individuals with other flavors of the APOE gene. And I told you that there are flavors, sort of number two, there's number three, number four, and lots of different combinations. Because don't forget, it's a two-copy combination approach here. They did a very extensive study, and they brought them into the sleep laboratory, and they measured their different sleep stages. Cutting to the punchline, <laughs> rather than what we anticipated or expected, which is so far I've been telling you general sleep disturbance with APOE4 and going one step down, worse sleep efficiency, more time spent awake. And then finally, when we looked at sleep stages, we would expect deficiencies there too, and perhaps especially or including deep non-REM sleep. But rather than seeing a decrease in deep non-REM sleep, what they found is that in the 40 participants with this two-copy combination of the E4, what we call the allele, 
those in the APO E4 double copy group actually spent more and not less time in deep non-REM sleep. And in fact, what they were finding was they were getting around about, and of course, these individuals, they weren't suffering from dementia yet. They were getting around one hour of deep non-REM sleep. And that was relative to about the 45 minutes of the remaining, I think it was about 500 carriers who had just one of the APO E4 alleles. So they could have been E4 and E3 or E4 and E2 versus the group at high risk, which are E4, E4 in terms of the two copy. So those with the two copy E4, they were having about an hour of sleep. And that was relative to those who had just one copy who had 45 minutes of deep non-REM sleep. And then when they looked at all of the other people in their cohort, and it was well over, I think, about 1,500 or 1,700 individuals who had no copy of the E4. They were either E2, E2, or E3, E3, or E2, E3. (laughs) I'm trying to do the mental gymnastics here. They had around 40 minutes. So in other words, the more prominent this APOE4 gene was in this two-combination approach, the greater, not the lesser amount of deep non-REM sleep that you were getting. Hmm. And that's surprising because what we found in some prior studies, and we've done some of this work too, is that deep non-REM sleep is linked to superior memory, better memory. And those individuals who have more deep sleep are typically better at remembering information that we teach them. But I've just told individuals that as you have this higher risk APOE4 double copy situation, you are at a higher chance of having cognitive decline and memory problems as you get older. So how do those two things work? It's so confusing. You would expect that if you're getting more deep non-REM sleep, you would be less likely to have memory problems. I actually really like this explanation. They offered a compensation explanation. And it comes back to the asterisk that I noted earlier, and I did remember to come back to it, about sleep, memory, and dementia. And the compensation idea is this, that knowing that memory function and cognitive function are declining in those at high risk for dementia, which is to say those with the APOE4 combination, sleep, when the brain is facing this onslaught of the declining influence on memory caused by the APOE4 combination, then the brain kind of hunts around in its toolbox and says, my goodness, what is good to try to fight back against this memory decline? Oh, I know it's sleep and it's particularly deep non-REM sleep. So in essence, sleep tries to push back or fight back against the impairing efforts of the double APOE4 combination that is trying to impair memory. So as memory impairment starts to grow and occur, sleep sort of quote unquote, and this is, I don't mean it literally, but sleep realizes this and tries to come to the rescue by selectively increasing the amount of that good stuff of deep non-REM sleep, which we know is the key to memory. And that provides what we would think of as a compensation mechanism. It was almost acting like a memory reserve factor that offers some pushback against the inevitable memory decline. Hmm. Does that make any sense Eddie, before we perhaps move on to the next question, because I'm realizing I've been going at this for so long. Well, there's so much to say. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And I just also wonder if they're just compensating for lost sleep, having all these sleep disturbances that we discussed, and the brain is just hungry for more of that deep sleep. That's a great hypothesis too. And the reason I like that is... Well, firstly, I dislike it because I'm jealous because it's a much better theory than mine. Um, But no, I, I love it. And the reason I love it is because it's the Occam's razor approach. Mine was a little bit more convoluted, required some mental gymnastics. Yours is much more simple. 
which is that we know when individuals are not getting good sleep. And just as I described, if I remove that thing of sleep entirely, you get this rebound bounce back where you get more of that deep sleep in subsequent nights. And if you're constantly not getting enough, then the brain asks, well, how can I try to placate that? One way I can do it is to dial up the quality and the quantity of that deep sleep, even though overall net-net, you're getting less total sleep in response. And therefore, it's trying to provide some degree of immune resistance, not in the very immune system sense. But yeah, I really I, I really like that. I also like your idea because it does offer sleep as a resilience factor. So if we can actually plan a study where you try to see if that added deep non-REM sleep really helps them maintain a level of memory function that would otherwise have been worse. See what I mean? Yeah, I do see what you mean. And the way that one would do that just for listeners in science is we would do what's called a longitudinal prospective study where we would start off and we would track individuals and we would see if the rate of memory decline was changed by their APOE4 status month after month, year after year. Now, those studies are fiendishly difficult to do, but theoretically, you could very much do them and start to get a little bit closer to causality rather than just simply correlational ideas. Exactly. Theoretical studies are the easiest to do. (laughs) (laughs) They don't require us writing grants for months and months, much as I love those things. On to the next question. The next question is, the fascinating topic of shift work and shift work about 10 million Americans are working in jobs that require them to be awake during the night, either some of the night or all of the night. And it's a kind of rather new, I would say, line of work. I don't think we had it before we had electricity. So it's very interesting to think about the impact of shift work on sleep. So the question goes, what are the potential health risks of changing shift schedules while still maintaining eight hours of sleep? So for instance, if an individual goes from the morning shift to the afternoon shift to the night shift, or whether they work the entire day, then switch to working the entire night and vice versa. Gosh, a lot to unpack there as I try to mentally catalog it. And I would note, by the way, I think the question you said was maintaining eight hours of sleep, even when you're going through shift work. Certainly one can maintain eight hours of a sleep opportunity, but what I will tell you right from the get-go is that it's actually quite difficult to maintain eight hours of sleep when it is mismatched with your circadian rhythm. But I'm already jumping the gun here. Shift work, and especially I would say probably night shifts, of course have rather marked, rather unwelcome effects on what we call your circadian rhythm. And that circadian rhythm regulates so many things. We underestimate how potent the circadian rhythm is in regulating almost every single aspect of your health. This includes regulating your wake-sleep schedules, your things like your body temperature, your metabolism, hormone releases, your gene expression. There's a whole host yeah, of reproduction. Things. Reproduction. And in fact, I think there's even births and deaths will follow a very predictable circadian phase. Now, of course, those two things happen across the entire 24-hour clock. But if you look at the distribution, then births and deaths will happen at unique specific times with higher probability around the 24-hour clock. It's somewhat predictable. It changes, as I said, body temperature and different aspects of your metabolism. We know that most world records at the Olympics are broken at a certain circadian time, usually somewhere between about, I think it's around noon to 3 p.m. Why? Because that's usually, on average, the peak of your core body temperature. That's when your engine of physiological function is running at its optimal temperature, and therefore you are at your optimal human 
performance potential. We can go into all sorts of details. So that's why I didn't break an Olympic record yet. (laughs) I was just (laughs) working out at the wrong time. (laughs) Yeah, I know. What's my excuse? Oh, I was always just trying to break records somewhere in the morning or in the evening. Um, So uh, there's your get out of jail free card. Shift work. Let me come back to it. And maybe some context to help folks listening. When you modify your sleep patterns due to shift work, or perhaps another more common example for people who don't do shift work would be something like jet lag, it forces the body to, well, (laughs) it's actually not the body because your central 24-hour clock is not in your body. It sits squarely in the middle of your brain, but just go with me here it will force your body's 24-hour clock to become out of essentially agreement with the real-time clock that sits on the wall. So even as your body's internal 24-hour clock tries to adjust to this complete mismatch in its normal rhythms relative to the standard 24-hour clock face on your wall, Nevertheless, during that mismatch of the internal versus external time, it leads to a range of potential health and also some cognitive issues. So to the first point of the question, what are the health risks associated with changing shift work schedules? Here I would say, and rightfully so in my past where I've been far too dictatorial and probably scaremongering with the sleep message, In some ways, I almost want to hold back because I don't want to be alarmist and worry people, but I do think it's important to offer the science, at least as gently as I can. And here it goes. Shift work impacts your circadian rhythm in a number of different ways. As I said, the circadian rhythm, it is fundamental, or perhaps a better term is elemental to regulating just about every aspect of your health. And therefore, no big surprise that when you start to disrupt your circadian rhythm, you start to disrupt all of those aspects of health-related physiology. Let me focus both downstairs in the body and upstairs in the brain. The first and most obvious one is that sleep becomes a problem. And if you look at individuals who are going between shifts, especially frequently. So, and by the way, this is probably action item number one for the public who are listening in terms of shift work and who are doing shift work as best you can. And I know that some people cannot avoid it, but as best you can try to stay away from flip-flopping back and forth between different shifts in close succession. What we have discovered across just about every study in this field is that that typically produces the worst health outcomes. If you go back to the example of the jet lag, that's like going back and forth from the West Coast to the East Coast or even further every couple of days. So the clock doesn't get a chance to readjust. That's right. So even if you are just going back and forth between shifts that are separated by three hours, which at first don't sound very extreme in the what we would call temporal difference, meaning the time clock difference. Okay, you start your shift here and end it here, and then for the next two days, you're three hours later, and then next you're three hours earlier. That doesn't sound too bad, but think about how that changes your circadian rhythm. That is indeed like the difference between New York and Los Angeles. You're flipping back and forth between three different time zones. And that can be crucifying on your circadian rhythm. And there was a great study looking at this type of quick flip-flopping between shift rotations by, gosh, he's such a legend, Torbjörn Ackerstad, who works at the Karolinska in Sweden. And this was a study, gosh, way back in the early 2000s or perhaps even earlier. And what he discovered is that night shift workers doing that type of flip-flopping They reported that their sleep was significantly worse relative to controls. Of course it was. And they had rates of insomnia that were close to 40%. Now, to give some context in the general public, the average insomnia rate seems to be around about 10 to 12%. But here, doing this quick flip-flopping back and forth between shifts, 
it increases your risk of insomnia considerably here up to almost 40%. That's unbelievable. So that's the first vulnerability that, of course, your sleep isn't going to be as good and rates of insomnia are higher. The next issue with insomnia moves on to general health-related issues, both brain and body. And I'll start with cardiovascular disease. What we've discovered is that shift work can in fact increase the risk of different aspects of cardiovascular disease. And there was a study probably about 10 years ago now in the BMJ, which is the British Medical Journal. And they reported that individuals who were doing shift work relative to those who weren't, they had about a 23% increased risk of what we call a myocardial infarction and a 5% increased risk in ischemic stroke. What do those terms mean for folks who don't know? An ischemic stroke occurs when a blood clot will either block or at least sit there and it will narrow the artery or arteries that are feeding your brain. It causes a reduction or a cessation in the blood flow and it deprives the brain cells of oxygen and also key nutrients. And that can lead to the death of those local territories of the brain that have been normally supplied by that blood flow stream, by those specific avenues and pathways that have now been blocked. And a myocardial infarction, by the way, is colloquially known as a heart attack. And this happens when blood flow to a part of the heart is actually blocked and it's usually blocked again by a clot, and it can lead to either damage or death of heart muscles. So that was really a quite striking paper in a very good journal, British Medical Journal, very renowned, and so therefore the science has to be very precise, and they did really a systematic review of all of the different studies and put them together into what we call a meta-analysis to come out with some of those numbers. It's not just your heart, of course, that suffers with shift work. Other issues occur, and perhaps for time's sake, I can focus on obesity and what we call metabolic syndrome, and then maybe speak a little bit about cancer. I know the C word is is challenging, but let me start with eating and obesity. Numerous studies now have shown that shift work is associated with increased likelihood of obesity and also what we call metabolic syndrome or problems regulating different hormones that are associated with things like insulin and glucose regulation. We've known that for some time and scientists have now gone down deeper and tried to say, well, okay, why is this happening? What is it about shift work that can cause these changes in eating and obesity and problems regulating blood sugar? And it's multifaceted as we both mentioned, the circadian rhythm plugs into just about every aspect of your major physiological health systems. So no wonder some of these consequences are related to multiple different mechanisms. And that's the case here too. First, why do we see obesity and metabolic syndrome? In part, it's because the shift work often disrupts, as I said, your body's natural circadian rhythm, and that alters the hormone balance for things like insulin and glucose. And you can't metabolize food. And when I say metabolize, I'm not necessarily just talking about the stomach in terms of digestion. That's not necessarily metabolism, that's digestion. Here it's about how your cells deal with that food energy, how it partitions it, and how you regulate in particular the spikes in glucose or those blood sugar spikes. And if you're not regulating it, that can set you on a path towards what we call type 2 diabetes. And sure enough, individuals who are working shifts, and including and in particular night shifts, are at a higher risk of developing type 2 diabetes, in part because of that circadian disruption of these critical metabolic hormones. The next issue is about erratic eating. Shift workers will often have irregular eating times, but they also discovered something else, something that I probably would not have thought to investigate. When you're working night shifts, of course, standard restaurants or places where you can go out and grab your lunch, they're closed. Even maybe the cafeteria in your workplace is going to be closed. 
So these individuals were relying on more processed and therefore higher calorie foods. And together with the altered eating patterns, it led to a profile, what we call an obesogenic profile of weight gain. And as weight gain increases, the chances of you not being able to regulate your blood sugar increases. And therefore, once again, higher chances of type two diabetes. That wasn't the end of the story of weight gain though with shift work. What we've discovered is that individuals doing those shifts, including night shifts, have a pattern of reduced physical activity, that there is something about shift work, either that it decreases your motivation to work out, it decreases the opportunity for you to work out, or it simply decreases your ability, your capacity to be physically at your extreme or your pushed performance level. So even if you do work out, you may not be able to work out as hard. And therefore that reduced overall physical activity, either because you're not doing it or when you're doing it, it's not as intense, leads to a higher risk of once again, weight gain and metabolic health issues. It's just interesting to me how similar it is to a profile of sleep loss. So we know that people who routinely don't get enough sleep are more likely to eat more calories than people who sleep well. They're less likely to work out. So it's very similar that we see they have more opportunities to eat, but perhaps also the hormonal shift that is caused by lack of sleep is making them hungrier. So many, many pathways that can lead to worse health. It's so unfair because it's almost a physiological conspiracy that colludes together to produce some of these profiles. And you're very right in the sense of the altered hormonal pathways with appetite regulation and also sleep deprivation, because sure enough, when we deprive individuals of sleep, and I've spoken about this on the show many times, there are two appetite regulating hormones, leptin and ghrelin. Leptin is a hormone that says, okay, you're satisfied with your food and maybe you don't want to eat anymore. Ghrelin does the opposite. It's the hunger hormone. And when you're sleep deprived, you lose that signal of I'm full, what we call the satiety signal. And you increase that ghrelin signal, which is no, I'm not satisfied with my food. I'm still hungry. I want to eat more. That same profile that you see in sleep deprivation, we also have observed in individuals who are performing shift work. So whether or not that's related to the abnormal circadian rhythm, or it's related to the sleep disruption produced by that abnormal mismatch of the circadian rhythm, I think is probably still a little bit unclear, although maybe studies by Charles Seisler out at Harvard have probably disambiguated that with some clever experimental techniques. But overall, I think that paints a picture certainly of the weight gain, obesity, and metabolic syndrome concerns. Let me finally touch on cancer because there is that literature, and I suspect some people who are doing shift work have heard hearsay about this. It's probably good for me to provide some scientific basis for this. What we have found is that shift work can increase the risk of cancer. There is some inconsistency in the data, but I would say that overall, there is a clearer picture emerging. I also want to note that the relationship between shift work and particularly night shift work is specific to certain forms of cancer. And so far, it is only associational in nature. It's not necessarily causal. Perhaps the strongest evidence so far for individual types of cancer relates to breast cancer. Numerous studies now have demonstrated a very strong link between a very strong link, by the way, link is a relationship and association. It's not necessarily causation, but it does mean that shift work is associated with significantly higher rates of breast cancer. And there was a study, I think it was a study actually I covered in my book a while back, demonstrating that individuals who were working the night shift had a 32% increased risk of breast cancer. And this association has been reported in nurses, it's been reported in flight attendants, 
and a number of other different occupations. And what they found was that I think for, I can't remember quite, I think it was maybe every three years or every four years of working a night shift, there was about a 3.3% increased risk of developing breast cancer. So you can imagine then it becomes this almost compounding interest on a loan that the more years one works, the higher and the higher that risk of breast cancer develops. A partner of today's podcast is an alternative to coffee that I've been using myself. As I think I probably mentioned on this podcast before, I am one of the individuals who is quite sensitive to caffeine based on my genetics, but I still like a similar beverage jumpstart to each day. And I do get sort of sleep inertia and it's nice to have something that can lift you out of that, but without the jitters or all of that caffeine crash that some people may experience. That is where the supporter of today's podcast comes in, Mud Water, and it is spelt M-U-D-W-T-R, so Mud Water. It is a popular coffee alternative, and Mud Water will blend cacao with varied mushrooms, and it has only a fraction of the caffeine of a cup of coffee, but it provides this, it's a really interesting just sort of Natural lift is the best way I can describe it. It's very pleasant and it has been working a treat for me. It also has all of the things that you want. It is 100% USDA certified organic. It is non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan, and kosher. If you would like to get a free offer, most people do, you can get a free frother, and that's one of those implements that you put in, and it creates that lovely sort of froth on the top of your drink, and you can get some free samples of the coconut creamer. You can just go on over to Mud Water, that is M-U-D-W-T-R dot com forward slash Matt Walker, you will get the freebies. So again, that is M-U-D-W-T-R dot com forward slash Matt Walker, and you will get your free frother and your free coconut creamer. Okay, let's get back to the show. One of the other studies that has looked at cancer has also found an interesting link with skin cancer of all things. And they found that night shift work was associated with over about a 40% increased risk of skin cancer. I should note that was selectively in women. I don't think they looked at men, but I can go back and check, maybe put it in the show notes. But the other studies have switched focus and they've looked at what we call gastrointestinal cancers. And what we found is that shift work, particularly night shift work, has been linked to almost a 20% increased risk of the different flavors of gastrointestinal cancers. And when I say different flavors, I'm meaning cancers of the stomach, of the liver, and of the pancreas, and different other areas of the digestive system. So that paints a very perhaps concerning picture. And I want to be really clear, it is not all forms of cancer. It's not every single form of cancer. And by the way, there are over a hundred different types of cancers at least. Shift work is not related to every single form of cancer it seems to be related to a select number of those many different forms of cancer. And to that point, in fact, there was a, a systematic review that looked at over 57 what we call observational studies, which are these associational studies. You measure factor A, shift work, and you measure factor B, different forms of cancer, and you look to see if there are links. And when they grouped all of the cancers together, many, many different types of cancers, what they found was that overall, there was no significant effect of night shift work. But when you break them down into the different categories of cancer, that's where you do see some sore thumbs sticking out, the thumbs that I described. And that's still non-trivial. That is still significant. And in fact, so much so that the World Health Organization, in partnership with something called the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is IARC, 
Together, they have now twice classified night shift work as a probable carcinogen in humans. So I think that that gives you some sense of at least the gravitas there. But again, I don't want to be fear-mongering. Anything I should mention there before concluding with two things, which is the brain consequences, which I'm now remembering I haven't yet spoken about, and I probably should because they are worth speaking about. And then perhaps recommendations and tips, which comes on to the last part of the question, which I'm fading to remember now. But any input or thoughts there, Etty? Yeah, I just wanted to add that basically there's nothing wrong with people sleep before they start doing shift work. And what they're fighting up against is this mismatch between the circadian clock and their sleep, as you mentioned. And I always like to give the analogy of if you ride your bike against the wind or at the wind at your back, you're going to have a much harder time when you're fighting against the wind. And they're trying to sleep during the day, which goes against their circadian clock. So it doesn't allow them to get sufficient sleep. And one of the mechanisms that people are now thinking that tie all these problems they have in sleep is related to melatonin. And we've discussed melatonin before, and it needs darkness in order to be released in our bodies. And what happens in shift work and specifically night shift work is that they are flooded in light during the night. So basically they don't have a chance to get darkness and to have their melatonin rise up. And one of the key mechanisms that research is now focusing on is whether giving melatonin could somehow help them reestablish perhaps some of the features of the clock and also melatonin in itself has anti-cancer properties. So could there be something there that could help people protect shift workers from this impairment in their sleep and their physiology overall? It's a great point. And again, thank you for bringing it up because we have looked into the mechanisms of the disruption process leading to these issues. And you're absolutely right, Etty, that it comes in part onto melatonin. When you're working at night, which is when normally you're sleeping at night, there's darkness, melatonin is rising. That's where you get your dominant flood of melatonin throughout brain and body. With the overhead lighting, as I've spoken about in the basic episode on melatonin, light coming through the eyes essentially acts like a foot that stamps on the brake pedal of melatonin release. And at night, if you're bathed in artificial light, which is what you are when you're working these shifts, you're going to have a greater suppression. In fact, that's exactly what we found of melatonin. Mm -hmm. Why is that related to health? Well, I've spoken about melatonin twice. The first was in its relationship with the natural timing of sleep. But the second time I mentioned it was in a very different context. This was on an episode about antioxidants and something that we call free radicals. And those free radicals, which are these rogue elements in your system that can cause damage to your cells, including to your DNA, are normally mopped up and corralled and neutralized by these things called antioxidants. And one of the most powerful antioxidants that we have discovered turns out to be melatonin. And so melatonin actually seems to have dual functions. One of its functions is to help regulate our circadian system. It helps with the timing of sleep. doesn't necessarily help with the generation of sleep, but it helps your brain and your body understand when it's time to go to sleep. But separate from that, or at least perhaps interacting, which is probably an oxymoron, it is, <laughs> it is related to the mopping up of these dangerous things that we call free radicals. It acts as an antioxidant. There was a great study that I described in that episode where sleep deprivation in flies and in certain mammals, things like mice, can be lethal. Sleep deprivation can kill organisms. But if you provide some of these antioxidants like melatonin, you can actually produce resilience against the normal deathly blow of sleep deprivation. Now here we're not talking about death, we're not talking about mortality, we're talking about the risk of health-related issues. And so perhaps, just as Etty said there, one way that we can try to now, having identified the health issues, one way we can risk mitigate against those 
is by giving people melatonin at night as they're working shifts to see if we can at least insert back a normal amount of melatonin at night that would be doing its work to try to provide an antioxidant benefit. Now, it's possible that that could cause some issues. And in some people, it may be that melatonin can produce some sleepiness. It's unclear. As I said, most of the studies don't show that. But could we then dose it during the daytime and therefore actually try to help individuals sleep better during the day? Because normally during the day, there is no melatonin signal because you are exposed to light and the brain is being told it's daylight. It's not time to sleep. But for night shift workers, when they come home in the morning, they need to sleep, but they've got no melatonin telling their brain and the body it's time to sleep. So perhaps it's two birds with one stone here, even though I'm pacifist and I don't like that idea. Two birds with one worm. (laughs) Yes, thank you very much. (laughs) The antioxidant worm called melatonin. And therefore you can actually satisfy the hunger of those two birds by using it as a signal for sleep to help with sleep timing. and you can dose it during the day to help with antioxidant function. In other words, mopping up those free radicals so you don't get the health damage. I'm going to skip past some of the brain consequences because I've been going for far too long. Needless to say, there are very significant mental health risks, depression, anxiety, mood disorders. There are some long-term cognitive effects, higher risks of cognitive decline and memory impairment. There was actually a very interesting study looking at airline pilots who do long haul flights where they essentially are doing a form of shift work. And what they were finding was that parts of the brain were deteriorated, actual physical deterioration in memory centers of the brain, a structure that we call the hippocampus that we've spoken about, a memory inbox in the brain. And that part of the brain showed a loss of gray matter cells in these individuals who were doing long haul flights, who had their circadian disruption because of effectively doing shift work or a form of shift work. And what they found was that the more years of service that they had put in doing these long haul transatlantic flights, the higher the probability of that brain deterioration. I would say that many of the other cognitive and mental health issues are reversible when people stop working those shifts. We have found that those things can be lessened or they can go away entirely. But this is perhaps one of those areas where it may be challenging to actually recover fully because you've lost brain tissue. Let me then, <laughs> people Man, at this I stage- I have to take a flight in a few days and now you scared me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. Everyone who's, I think probably like British Airways now is going to host a, a 2.3 loss on Wall Street because this I'm overestimating uh, as if my podcast has anywhere in that, that reach. If my dear friend Andrew Huberman was speaking about this, it probably would have a measurable impact on the airline industry. But Transatlantic me, flights. Yeah, not so much. Okay, Eddie, earplugs in, block your ears. But actually, no, this is the time. You should have been doing that before because at this stage, people are thinking, my goodness, this is Matt Walker, Dr. Doom and Gloom. What about advice? What about recommendations? What about strategies to deal with shift work? In terms of recommendations, the first piece of advice and the best piece of advice, I think, is that if you can, and as I said, not all people can, please try to stay away from switching between shifts rapidly. For example, doing two nights on and then two days on and then two days off and then two nights on and then two days on. That type of flip-flopping back and forth seems to be the very worst of all. That's where you can see the greatest challenge. That's where we see consistently the worst health outcome consequences. What can you do instead or what else can you either request or if you are structuring these schedules for individuals in the workforce, what can you think about doing for them to minimize this? The best thing that we've developed or identified is something that we call rotating shift work. So for example, you gradually move yourself around the 24-hour clock in these sort of increments. So for example, to begin your working schedule segment, you would start with doing the early evening through until the early night shift. 
and then you would switch to the early night to the early morning shift, and then you would switch from the early morning through into the first half of the day switch, and then finally you would go all the way back again, going through to the afternoon into the early evening, and you just sort of move your way nice and gently around the 24-hour clock. Now, this doesn't mean that you remove any of the health risk or you don't suffer any of the sleep problems. You will do, but it seems to be that that is the most optimal. There's a great paper by, I think it was Boven and James, gosh, back when I was just sort of starting out back in the 2000s, I remember reading this, that was almost what they found was that this shifting, this gradual shift rather than these extreme flip-flop shifts were markedly better in terms of these outcomes. What other things can you try to do? Let's say that you can't change the, the pattern or it's not under your control. What are the other tips that I would have? I think the next one would be controlling your light exposure. When you are transitioning from a day shift to a night shift, expose yourself to bright light during your waking hours, not necessarily anything to do with the 24-hour clock face, but during your waking hours, try to expose yourself to as much light as possible that will help you with the drowsiness. It will help you with your performance and then do the opposite. Try to reduce light exposure before you're trying to sleep. So as you're coming home from the night shift, already perhaps put on some sunglasses to protect you, to minimize the bright light that will be there in the morning. When you get into your home, see if you can already have drawn blinds and curtains. If you can, obviously you may be in a family and the family has to operate normally, but if you can just try to do some of these things and that can help reset your internal clock and make things a little bit easier. On your days off, no matter what you do, try to maintain the same consistent sleep schedule. The consistency, that regularity, that signal of consistency is going to retrain your brain back into a standard rhythm more quickly once you are doing your off days. So that can help stabilize your internal clock. The next tip I would have is to create a restful sleep environment. Now, I know this sounds like a light touch recommendation, but it actually does help make sure that your environment mimics nighttime conditions as best you can. In other words, try to make your bedroom like a cave. Make it dark, make it cool, make it quiet. Use blackout curtains, use earplugs. If you want, you can use white noise machines to help block out some of the daytime disruption because of course, usually the daytime is a little bit more ambient environmental noise loud relative to the nighttime. The next recommendation comes on to nutritional timing. Your eating schedule can impact your circadian rhythm. Light is one way that we train and reset our circadian rhythm, but it turns out that your brain can latch onto lots of other different things that act like a set of fingers on a wristwatch dial to pop out the dial and retrain your internal 24-hour clock. And when you eat is also one of those things that can act as a set of resetting fingers. So when you are switching shifts, adjust your meal times accordingly. Eat a substantial meal before starting your shift and try to eat a healthy substantial meal. And then as you're eating throughout the night shift, that hopefully because you've had a good, solid, healthy standard meal beforehand, it will lessen the chance that you have that increased appetite and those hunger signals because of the abnormalities of the hormones we spoke about. And it will reduce the chance that you're reaching out for those processed foods later in the shift. And then maybe you can pack your own food and just eat a little bit lighter because at night your body is not going to be as efficient at disposing those calories in a healthy way, meaning that it's more likely to dispose of the calories and partition them as fat rather than perhaps assign them to things like building muscle. And it's also less likely to be able to 
keep those blood sugar spikes down when you eat. All of us will usually have an increase in blood sugar when we eat. But how big that spike is and how long that spike lasts is one of our markers of your risk of diabetes and type 2 diabetes. So try to eat a slightly lighter meal. Those are the things that will also help. The final thing that I want to touch on is, and again, I'm not trying to sound alarmist, avoid long commutes if you can on your drive home. Try to minimize commuting times after your shift as much as you can. A long drive after a night shift not only increases the risk of accidents, but it also will be eating into the opportunity time that you have to sleep as well. But there was a great study again by Torbjörn Akerstad back in Sweden. This was in the early 2000s. And gosh, they found significantly higher accident rate risks for individuals coming back home from a night shift relative to other control individuals. So I think that's just something to be aware of. If I were bizarre for a day, I would probably say that all companies should either pay for or the government should subsidize schemes where night shift workers should be provided transportation home that they shouldn't be getting behind the wheel. But I think that's I would probably vote for to... you, Matt. Thank you. If, Thank if you. And I would vote for it votes. too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know why I use that term. It's speaking about dictatorial. <laughs> and I think I just heard a horn in the background. That probably means that it is time to close this episode of the AMA. Do not worry. There will be another one coming along next month. We have so many great questions from you inbound. Keep them coming. There will be announcements on social media, but feel free to send me uh, social media requests. You can find me on Twitter, on Instagram, even on TikTok now. Just share your questions and we will upload them and we will look to see the high frequency requested items and we will load them into the top order for the next forthcoming AMAs. So as ever, I will thank you, the audience, for listening. Thank Etty, my wonderful co-pilot, for these episodes and say take care. Bye for now. Thanks very much. Thank you.